On December 7th, 1941, a day that the president at the time, President Roosevelt, said would live in infamy, America woke up to the incredible and tragic news that, of course, as you know, Pearl Harbor had been attacked by the Japanese. And life was not going to be the same. And there were millions of Americans in response to that, the declaration of war that ensued, and the rally that was given to join the war effort. Millions of Americans said, I, I can't help but go. I can't help but do something. I've got to get involved somehow. And the rest, of course, is history. An army of ordinary citizens, a country full of ordinary people that weren't asking for a war but rose to the occasion fought back the forces of Adolf Hitler and his allies and, of course, destroyed that evil. And the world was changed forever. It's amazing what happens when people say, I, I can't do nothing. I have to do something. I can't help but go. I've got to, to figure out what is my place in all of this. Those people during the war effort decided for them, they could no longer stick their heads in the sands and pretend as if there was nothing going on in the world that needed their involvement, and they did get involved. Many of you were alive during that time. Others had relatives who maybe told you stories about that effort, how the whole country rallied together and said collectively, I can't help but go, I can't help but do something. And this morning, I, I want you to know that my goal for this sermon is much the same as that motivation was for them during that time. For you to walk out of here saying, I can't help but do something about what I know, what I've seen, what I've heard, what God has put on my heart. That's my goal for you and for me this morning. Is that as you encounter the great love and grace of Jesus Christ, as He overwhelms you and helps you understand once again how much He loves you and the death of Jesus that was for you, I hope that you'll leave here saying, God, what is on, your, what is, what is on my heart now, Lord? What have you put on my heart? God, help me to do something about it. I want you to, to, to determine this morning as best you can, or maybe just begin the process of saying, God, what is it that you want me to leverage my life toward? How is it, God, that you've given me skills and a personality and interests and hobbies and things that I'm good at and a job and, and friends and relatives and neighbors and relationships and where I live and where I work? God, how is it that you want to use all of that stuff? Because I believe he does. God, how is it that you want to use all of that stuff to send me out, to, to make me a person who can go and make disciples? We're in a series called Go, as you can tell there on the outline. The idea is from Matthew 28 that Jesus sent out his disciples and has sent us out as his followers to go and make other disciples, to be a part of the ongoing mission of Jesus Christ. My goal in this series really is to help us to figure out how can we how can we know more how can we be more motivated how can we do more of living life on mission for the lord wherever you may be i want you to know that the stuff you're good at the things you're interested in the experiences you've had good bad and otherwise the the talents that god has given you the relationships that you have around you now where you live where you work it's by no accident whatsoever you are right where God wants you to be, right in this moment. And all of those things can be leveraged toward a life lived on mission for God. So far, 
in this series, what we've done is to identify what we've called our one for 10. This is a 10 week sermon series. We're in week number four and we've tried to identify one person or one group. You say, this is who God has in my heart. I'm just going to, in the next 10 weeks, I'm going to begin the process of trying to, to understand them, to pray for them, to love them, to see what kind of spiritual status they have. And maybe God can use me in a way that could win that person of Jesus Christ. We also looked a few weeks ago at, at how we can't steal second with your foot on first base. And so what are the things we've got to leave behind? Just like Abraham had to leave behind his friends and family and relatives. God called him somewhere else. How is it that we need to take the first step away from first base? You can't steal second with your foot on first. How can we do that? And last week, we looked at Moses. And the group of people that he was given charge over drove him crazy. They would have driven us crazy, and not just annoying type crazy, but they wandered from God, and they didn't do what he told them to do. And Moses was the guy who was supposed to lead all these people that didn't want to get on board with what he told them. What's our response to that? It was simple last week, to love them anyway, to continue to go after them. And this week, we'll see a man named Nehemiah. You might know his story. He's the guy who rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem after they had been torn down, and his story interestingly enough, is found in the book of Nehemiah. And so if you've got a Bible handy, why don't you turn there? If you've got a tablet or a smartphone, you can get to the scripture there as well. You'll see on the sermon outline a little code. If you've got a scanner there, you can scan that. Because the scripture is lengthy and I'm going to kind of bounce around, the words will not be on the screen this morning. I didn't want to confuse our guys in the back, which it would have been tough to keep up a little bit this morning. So if you need to scoot close to somebody to borrow that Bible or that smartphone or tablet, do that. But we're in Nehemiah, we're going to look at, at the, the, all of chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2 this morning. And, and let me catch you up to speed. What's happened in the history of Israel to this point is the nation was overcome by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And he exiled the Israelites to Babylon, took them away from their homeland. And, and later on, the Persians took over the Babylonians and... And a king named Cyrus of the Persians decided he wanted to repopulate some of these lands that had been conquered. And so he began to send back some of the Israelites back to their holy land in Jerusalem. And a man named Ezra, the book right before Nehemiah, and in fact those two books were one at one point. It was Ezra-Nehemiah, Ezra-Nehemiah, one book together, a running history of what happened as the exile ended. Ezra led lots of people to go back to to Israel, to Jerusalem, and they began to rebuild the city. They began to rebuild the temple, to restore God's glory, to make the city once again a, a place that reflected God and His greatness. And then they tried to rebuild the walls, and they were stopped by a king named Artaxerxes, who we'll see in this chapter. The walls were put on hold, and so the city is left defenseless. The book of Nehemiah opens with Nehemiah, the man who rose to great power, under King Artaxerxes. In fact, he was the most trusted man because he was the cupbearer. He was the guy that made sure the king didn't get poisoned. And so he was very, very important. And we pick up the story in Nehemiah chapter 1. I want you to look with me just the first three verses to start, and we'll get an idea of what sets the tone for the remainder of this chapter. During the month of Chislev in the 20th year, that's the 20th year of King Artaxerxes of Persia, when I, Nehemiah speaking in the first person, was in the fortress city of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, other versions say one of my brethren, could have been a, a brother, blood brother, could have been simply a relative or a kinsman, arrived with men from Judah. And I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had returned from the exile. They said to me, 
the survivors in the province who returned from the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned down. Friends visit. Nehemiah asks them, hey, tell me how things are going back in Jerusalem. He's just curious. Those are his friends and his family, his relatives extended. And obviously he wants to know, hey, guys, tell me, how are things going in Jerusalem? Of course, Nehemiah had not been there. He had been exiled and had been raised to serve this Persian king, Artaxerxes. And these fellows come and he asks them and they say, it's not good. In fact, they use terminology, great trouble and disgrace, that we would say Jerusalem was in a bad way. It wasn't good for them. Things aren't the way that they should be. In fact, they tell him the walls are broken down, and that meant there's no defense. That meant the city is open for attack. That, that meant it's in disgrace. A, walls, a, a wallless city was a disgraceful city, just built for mockery, really. Walls had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and had sat like that for around 150 years. Maybe the people, once they were told by the king in Ezra chapter 4 to stop building the walls, maybe they just gave up. Maybe they were too scared. Maybe they just got used to the fact that, well, this is the way it's going to be. Things aren't going to get any better. We'd love to do something, but we're too afraid. We don't know where to start. Apparently, those people had lost their way a little bit. And Nehemiah gets this report that the walls are broken down. I wonder if you think of your life and where you live and work and go to school, people that you're around on a regular basis, as you survey the land, as you look Where are the walls broken down? What is it that you say, oh, how how awful that those people are going through that? How, How difficult that must be for those folks. I wonder what breaks your heart. What is it that won't leave you alone? And I really mean that. We become so cynical, don't we? So insensitive to the people around us. So focused on, well, I've got my own set of issues. I don't have time to worry about a whole lot of other people. Or maybe you've given up. There's nothing you can do about it. It bothers you, but eh, just like those people trying to rebuild the walls, there's nothing I can do. Nehemiah's response comes in verse 4. When I heard these words about the walls, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. It broke him. He couldn't shake it. It was all over him. He he could not get away from the words that he had heard. He didn't blame anybody for the situation. He doesn't rant about it. He's just broken. He just weeps over it. Maybe you've got something in your life that, that every time you encounter that... Every time you hear about that or you talk to that person or you read something else about that situation, it just crushes you. I hope you have something like that. I really hope that your heart is in tune with God enough to be crushed by certain things. Nehemiah could no longer ignore what was going on. He couldn't just pretend that it wasn't happening or wish that it would go away on its own. In fact, Nehemiah could no longer just live in blissfully unaware circumstances. You realize that before he got this report, everything was fine for him. I mean, he's serving the king. He's got a good job, secure job. He's he's living in a place that is a wonderful city, full of all kinds of things that he could ever want or need, and things are pretty good for him. And blissfully unaware of what's going on. and, And then he gets this report. Maybe you've had that happen to you. 
You know, listen, I was fine until I saw that on the news. You know, I was fine until that email came. I was fine until that text message arrived. And I was fine until I saw that. I heard about that. Nehemiah was the same kind of guy, just blissfully unaware. And yet when he got this report, the call on his life changed forever. He recognized that so far he had been called by God to serve under this king. But when he got this report, it's essentially like he said, I I can't help but go. I've got to do something about this. I can't pretend like it's not going on anymore. If I could ask you to, to pray one thing leaving here today, to have one conversation with God that doesn't end this week, it would be very simply, God, bother me with what bothers you. As you leave here today, that's all I would would ask you to pray. God, bother me with what bothers you. You could tell that Nehemiah became very bothered, very irritated, very upset, very crushed, shocked even by the things that were happening that he knew were close to the heart of God. I've talked to people who are bothered by broken marriages. They want to do something about it. They want to minister to people who are going through that. They want to help people not go through that. I've seen people who who have a heart for single mothers and they just want to help them because maybe they've been there. They know what it's like. I know of people who have a heart for for young folks. The difficulties that they endure in this world and the fact that the world is really against them and wants to draw them away from Jesus and they've got a heart for young people and want to help them. Other people have a heart for teachers or athletes or victims of abuse or they want to see fathers lead their families and their children better. Or maybe it's kids who are bullied at school and their heart breaks for those things. You've seen those people. Maybe you are that person. In my own life, I'll tell you there's a couple of things. One is something that I believe that God has has just helped me to see personally and another, honestly, is is for our church. Personally, I, I have a heart for amateur baseball players and coaches. And you all know that. And it's almost cliche now for me to even say it. But that's my heart breaks for those guys. In fact, if I could could do something to help equip those coaches to lead those players better, to not exploit them, to not abuse them with their language and so on and so forth, to help them. And if I could help rescue those players by equipping those coaches, let me tell you, that's that's close to, to my heart. I see a need for those things to help lead those people spiritually. And I'll tell you, for our church, one of the things that I'd love to see our church be, and I've mentioned this to you before, I think, I'd love to see our church be the place, at least in East Callaway County, that when people say, I need help when it comes to to raising my family, to knowing how to get through this marriage, to, to building a strong biblical marriage, to raising children and so on, I'd love to see our church be the rally point for that. For us to be the place that folks can depend on, whether they ever come to church here or not, honestly, doesn't matter to me. But maybe we could be the place that reaches out like we did at Trunk or Treat. Those things, that's what gets me going. I wonder what it is for you. God, bother me with with what bothers you. You say, I don't even know. I don't even know what bothers God. What really? Let me encourage you to get to know the Word of God. If if you are dependent only on a sermon each week and that's the only spiritual meal you get, you're going to starve to death. You realize that, don't you? Spiritually, that's not enough. Let me encourage you to get into the Word of God. Read about what is close to God's heart, the things that He cares about. God cares about people that are far from Him. That's why He came in Jesus Christ. 
God cares about a lost and sinful world. God cares about people who rebel against him. God cares about people who are down and out, people who are poor, people who have nothing, people who are destitute. God cares about that. Maybe as you read the scripture, God's heart will be revealed to you. And you'll understand his character. God, bother me with what bothers you. To the point, you might say, so, so that I can't help but pray. Look what Nehemiah does. He says, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Here's what he says. I said, Lord God of heaven, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. Let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted corruptly toward you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among all peoples. But if you return to me, carefully observe my commands. Even though your exiles were banished to the ends of the earth, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. Listen to his prayer. He says, I'm so bothered by this. I wonder if he said, God, bother me with what bothers you so that I can't help but pray. The first thing Nehemiah does isn't to rant about the issue on Facebook. He doesn't send text messages. He doesn't try to rally the troops. He just goes before God and he says, God, I'm so, so desperate. God, I'm so broken over this. God, I, I don't know what to do. I, I wonder if you would go to God and say, Lord, I'm desperate. God, please show me. Please show me what to do. Maybe this morning God begins to burden you and kind of stir your heart a little bit for someone or something that you know about. And you just say, Lord, I'm desperate. Let me encourage you, be desperate. Just like the prayer, Nehemiah throws himself at the feet of God and he says, God, you've got to show me. What to do? Verse 6, it says night and day. Verses 6 and 7, he confesses sin. Verses 8 through 11, he goes to the Lord and says, God, I need your help. I need your favor, Lord. Help us to know what to do. Uh, there's a man named Ronnie Floyd, a pastor in Arkansas, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And, and, he, and he wrote an article this week on his blog, and I, I thought it was worth sharing. He, he recounted that in the first four months of his Southern Baptist Convention presidency, the last four months, all the different world events that have taken place, lots of different things from, from war kinds of things to Supreme Court decisions to things that have happened here in the United States and so on. And he says these words in his post, Do we really think there is any other answer at this time in our world than spiritual awakening in our nation and reaching the world for Christ? This is why we must pray, and I mean pray like never before. We need to pray personally in our churches and in gatherings with other Christ followers. This is the time for us now to rise up and pray for spiritual awakening and to reach the world for Christ. He says, I've said over and over these past 138 days that when we talk about praying for spiritual awakening, we accompany that with an aggressive strategy to reach our towns, villages, cities, our nation, and other nations with the gospel. Prayer is not inaction, but our greatest action. 
Prayer empowers us to believe God for great things, and it moves us into taking aggressive action and reaching our towns, villages, cities, nation, and other nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is God's will for my life and my church and every church in the world, presenting the gospel of Jesus to every person in the world and making disciples of all nations. This starts with me personally. This continues with my church collectively. This influences my region miraculously. This awakens my nation supernaturally. This reaches the entire world globally. I think his words are very appropriate. What do you do when you look around and you notice the walls are broken down? What's your first response? According to what Nehemiah did, according to the reinforcement from the Southern Baptist Convention president, our first, our first step is to be desperate in prayer. God, show me what to do. I mean, I look around and I see, as I mentioned, the amateur baseball players and coaches, and I say, God, I don't even know where to start. There's so many of them. I mean, what do you do? God, help me. Show me what to do. Maybe that's your prayer this morning. You leave here and you say, God, you, you have bothered me with this issue. That person is on my heart. God, I can't escape this anymore. Show me what to do. God, I'm desperate. I need to know. God, bother me with what bothers you secondly so that I can't help but plan. Now, it's one thing to just pray about it. But as Ronnie Floyd said in his article, and as we see from Nehemiah, it goes further than that. Flip over to chapter 2 of Nehemiah. Verse 5 says this way, I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah, and to the city where my ancestors are buried, so that I may rebuild it. The king, with the queen seated beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take, and when will you return? So I gave him a definite time, and it pleased the king to send me. Now pay attention to verse 7. I also said to the king, If it pleases the king, let me have letters written to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates River, so that they will grant me safe passage until I reach Judah. And let me have a letter written to Asaph, keeper, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me the timber to rebuild the gates of the temple's fortress, the city wall, and the home where I live. The king granted my request, for I was graciously strengthened by my God. Do you see what Nehemiah did? He starts broken, desperate. And he says, God, I can't help but go, and so I'm going to begin by prayer. But he didn't just pray and say, okay, God, I've talked to you about it. I, you know, just, just take care of everything miraculously, Lord. I'm done at this point. He knows that he's got to do something, and so he formulates a plan to make that happen. He formed his plan well in advance. He doesn't think of this on his feet. In fact, in the days and weeks that led up to the conversation he would have with the king, he's formulating, here's what it's going to take to make this happen. So that when I talk to the people that are going to be able to help me, I know exactly what to tell them. Now, I realize that for some of us, we have a lot of strategic planning that we do in our lives for our jobs and so on and so forth. We come to church, we put all that on the shelf. Guess what? We shouldn't put all that on the shelf. Because if we're going to reach the world, even just our world, East Callaway County for Jesus Christ, guess what? It's going to take a good plan to do that. In fact, there was a book that was written by a guy named Aubrey Malfors called Advanced Strategic Planning. Now that sounds really corporate, but guess what? He wrote it for churches. Because he recognized the need in churches not only to be desperate and be broken for things, but to have a good plan for here's how we are going to do this. He asks the question, what are we supposed to be doing? Church, if we stop to think about that, 
And what is it that we are supposed to be doing? Just meeting every Sunday? I doubt it. And then secondly, are we doing that? We say, well, we're supposed to be making disciples of all nations. Are we doing that? Not just as somebody else out there, are we doing that? And then the next question is, how are we going to do it? Well, I don't know. I guess it'll just happen. Problem is, it doesn't just happen, does it? You want anything to get done, you want to follow God's plan for your life, you've got to join Him and have a strategic plan. Let me tell you, strategic planning is biblical and it's necessary. We've got to do everything we can as well as we can. In fact, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 5 talks about the plans that we have in our hearts and drawing those out. Not just leaving them in some abstract form, but putting those into a form that we can follow. Now, I'll be honest with you, this is a little bit difficult for me, and maybe it is for you too. Because I, I, you know, I, I'm a strong believer that God's in control, and I'm not going to tell God what He's going to do, and Lord, I don't want to take any missteps, okay, I'm not going to play God and all that kind of stuff. I, maybe, that's, maybe that's for you too, but I, I tell you, the things that God has put on my heart, I recognize that they're never going to be accomplished, at least as far as I can help them if I don't formulate some plan and get working on it. And maybe for you, you say, oh, these people are on my heart. I don't know what to do. You pray, God, show me what to do. And maybe now you'd simply start to be strategic. And you say, God, in this process, guide my every step. Lord, I don't want to do anything that you don't want me to do. But God, I know I've got to be strategic to make this happen. You know, for those who who want to see the, the folks in our community that are hungry and poor, and don't have anything, you want to see that remedied, guess what? It's going to take a plan. Be strategic. God, guide my every step. God, bother me with what bothers you thirdly so that I can't help but participate. You know, it's one thing to pray and formulate a good plan. It's nothing to do it. To get going on it. Look at the first part of chapter 2. During the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Of course, he was the cupbearer. I had never been sad in his presence. They put on a good show, of course. So the king said to me, why are you sad when you aren't sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. That means he was depressed and it was obvious. He's in a bad way, just like Jerusalem was in a bad way. It was overwhelming sadness. He says, then I'm overwhelmed with fear. (laughs) You realize he's talking to the same man who shut down the wall rebuild back in Ezra chapter 4. What am I going to do? God has so burdened me that I can't get away from this, but this is the guy who's the gatekeeper. He's the one who has the power to shut it all down. What am I supposed to do? He says, I was afraid. Verse 3, and replied to the king. I was scared, but I couldn't help but go. I couldn't help but participate. I couldn't help but do it. He says, may the king live forever. Why should I not be sad in a bad way when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king says, what's your request? And that's when he lays it all out for him. He was so burdened, so bothered by these things that he couldn't help but pray. He was desperate. God, show me what to do. He couldn't help but plan. He, he began, began to get strategic. God, guide my every step. And he couldn't help but participate. He was bold. Let me encourage you to be bold in what God has called you to do. 
God, don't let me quit. Don't let me give up on this. God, make sure that I keep going. Nehemiah talked to somebody who could help him. He was bold enough to go before the king who had shut it all down before, but God was more important to him than that response of the king. He had to do something. Let me tell you this. You'll know that you're being bold for the Lord when you begin to operate this way, when it takes you out of what's comfortable. Nehemiah the cupbearer, great job. Everything perfect. Could have just gone on and said, guys, man, I'm sorry for that. Wish wish there was something I could do. I've got to serve the king. This is my job. I've got to stay here. Fellas, I hope it goes well when you return to Jerusalem. Nobody asked Nehemiah to go. So this was beyond what was expected of him. As you begin to operate with this burden from God, what bothers him begins to bother you. Guess what? Nobody's going to expect you to do anything about it. It's going to be above and beyond what is expected. It's going to take some boldness, some extra steps. It might be outside of your job description. It might cost you a little money, a little time. It's going to be beyond what God or what anybody expects of you. But it's going to be what God has called you to. Nehemiah recognized also, as you see the story play out after verse 9, and he goes back to Jerusalem, begins to rebuild the walls. Guess what? It was beyond what he could accomplish alone. There are things that God has put on your heart, and maybe somebody sitting next to you or across the way or somebody that you know, you say, look, this is what God has put on my heart. And lo and behold, God's going to be working on them the same way. And you say, look, I need help. Let's work on this together. Nehemiah also found out that as he took these steps of boldness and obedience, didn't always get him an immediate payoff. This is the difficult part. You say, all right, God, I'm excited about this. Lord, you've broken my heart over this. I've made a good plan, and here we go, and nothing happens. Not always going to get you an immediate payoff. Requires that you do lots of little small things along the way, continuing to make investments, continuing to pray. It's also going to challenge the the cultural norm. You realize that not everybody went back with Nehemiah. There were lots of other Jews there that just decided they wanted to remain comfortable. (laughs) Don't involve me in that, man. Leave me out of it. I'm fine right where I am. I don't want to know. I don't want to get involved. But for Nehemiah, and I pray for you, there's an overwhelming sense that I can't help but do something. God has sent me. His call on my life is stronger than my fear and my reluctance and my desire for comfort. I'm going to do something. I realize that for some you think, well, I guess you're just trying to get me to move somewhere else, aren't you? Some of you, yes. No, I'm I'm just, did I say that out loud? Sorry you got to catch me on that stuff now. You're close enough to hit me with something before I say that. I'm not trying to get you to move anywhere else. Except out of where is comfortable for you. Where is God calling you to leverage yourself? I mean, what is it that you have that God says, that's what I'm going to use in the life of that person or toward that effort in Murray and Callaway County? You may be called to go right where you are. And maybe to see it with different eyes. You may be called. Let me tell you this. If God is on you right now and he wants you to go somewhere else, you come, we'll talk about it, and I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to encourage you to do whatever God tells you to do. Whatever it is. My son Hank, yesterday we were at a wedding, and we were talking about different things, and he told somebody that we were sitting with, he said, well, if I don't become a a professional baseball player, he said... I think I might like to be a missionary. 
I said, told Nancy later on, I said, well, I hope he does. I don't know what will happen. But let me tell you this. I'm going to encourage you as your pastor, somebody who loves you. You do what God tells you to do. You know the heart of God. You get to know his character. You figure out what bothers him. And then you leverage everything you possibly can. You get one shot at it. You realize that? One life. Don't get to the end of it and say, oh, I had all these dreams and I had all these things. that I knew God, you know, at that service, I remember on November 2nd, 2014, I remember that guy talking about it. I did nothing. Don't die with that stuff in your heart. Let God draw it out. Let him inspire you. Let him make you bold and figure out how is it, God, that you want to leverage everything I have, all my talents, all my skills, all the stuff that you give me. God, how can I use that? Bother me, Lord, with what bothers you. Let me encourage you this week to take the first step, whatever that may be. For you, it may be to pray. <laughs> For you, it may be just to kind of open your eyes and say, Lord, show me. What, what is it? God, bother me with something this week. God, my heart is, is kind of cold right now. For others, you may need to formulate a plan on what God has already talked to you about. Or maybe you've already got all the prayer and you know what God wants you to do and you've sort of written it out and you kind of know how it should go. And whew, Now it's time to do something. Let me tell you, you don't have to go alone. I'd love to pray for you. I know there are others in this room who would say, let me help you with that. How can we support you? How can, how can we pray for you? I wonder if you'd see yourself maybe as somebody's Abraham or somebody's Moses or somebody's Nehemiah, somebody's Apostle Paul that God has sent specifically to them. You realize that your life with Jesus is, is not just about your life that happens after you die. You know, we, we talk about Jesus came and he died to save us from our sins and to give us eternal life. You know what? That's 100% true. But you know, he also came to set you on a mission to fulfill your life in so many ways that you could not get on your own. And, and that kind of life begins now. I wonder what you want to see happen in the lives of the people that you work with your friends and neighbors, the folks that you care so deeply about, your family? What is it that you want to see happen through the ministry of this church? Let me encourage you. Don't wait any longer. Get started. Start praying. Start planning. Start participating. Get going with what God has set you on mission to do. Jesus died to save you and to send you on mission for Him. There's no greater life than that. You may be sent somewhere else, or you may be sent right where you've already planned to go tomorrow. Maybe you'd go with a little different eyes. Once you know Jesus loves you, that you don't go alone, based upon His presence in your life, that when you step out for Him, He's already there. So go. I can't help but go. Just like Nehemiah. Let's pray together. Maybe the first step for you this morning is to truly, for the very first time, surrender yourself to Jesus. Maybe what God has bothered you with this morning is something different from going. It's coming to Him. And you say, I'm not sure I know Jesus like that. I, I got no problem with Him, but I'm not sure I truly know Him like that. 
The Bible says to repent and to believe. Repent of sin. Believe in Jesus for salvation. I wonder if that's the prayer you need to pray this morning. God, save me. Lord Jesus, take over my life. Maybe your prayer is, God, send me. I can't help but go. Show me what to do. Make me bold. Give me a plan. God, we're we're in need of your wisdom. Lord, as we consider the walls that are broken down around us, Lord, help us to know what to do. Guide our every step and don't let us quit. Thank you that you go with us. Thank you for our brothers and sisters and the family of God that are there for us, can help us along the way. Lord, I pray that you'd make this church a sending church, that each and every Sunday we'd leave here as missionaries to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. Help us, Lord, we pray in his name. Amen.